finally getting to a point where this COVID stuff starting to go away. Seems like we've kind of had some time off and just makes you feel like it's about time we get back to doing the Lord's work. Um, I was reading a book somewhere it said on how to deliver sermons. Basically it said I had 20 to 30 seconds to spark your interest or your mind was gonna to start to wander. So here it is. How far reaching do you think the Bible is? How far in miles do you think the Bible, how far reaching the Bible is? Well, how about 238,855 miles? The Bible is so far reaching that it reaches out 238,855 miles. Now, how did I get that number? Did you know there's a Bible on the moon? Yep, there's actually a Bible on the moon. It was left there on the dash of uh, the lunar rover in the Hadley Plains area on the moon by the Apollo 15 crew or crew member. That Apollo 15 crew member was mission commander Colonel David R. Scott on August 7th or 2nd, 1971. He left a Bible and a small plaque on the moon and though it's been debated as if it was actually sanctioned by NASA, he still did it anyway. Uh, turns out that uh, the Apollo crew members were allowed to take personal items with them in small bags. They had uh, size and weight restrictions, uh, but the Apollo 15 mission was first crew to take a uh, lunar rover to the moon. And um, Scott was uh, the first person to drive a lunar rover on the moon. Prior to lifting off from the moon, Scott placed a Bible on the control panel of the rover and also a plaque honoring all the, pre all the astronauts who had died and given their life in the process of getting a man to the moon. So just thought that was an interesting Bible fact. See if we get your attention. So tonight we're going to talk about life struggles, trials. We all have them. Everybody here tonight has experienced at one time or another some form of difficulty in their life, difficult times, trials, some more than others. I especially feel this sermon is more specific to people who have more life experiences. Kind of using myself as an example of that. Uh, I'm not gonna ask what your age is if you don't ask what mine is. But it's a simple fact that a person that's 18 years old has only lived 6,570 days. Yet a person that is 60 years old has experienced 21,900 days in their life. That's a lot more opportunities to experience trials and misgivings in life. So it's easy to see that as the older we get, the odds are the more life of events we're going to experience. But again, each one of us has experienced trials, hardships, despair in their life, and at some point, they're going to experience more. Again, some more than others. 
I think we can all kind of think you know somebody or a family that you know of over the course of however many years. It just seems like if it wasn't for bad luck, you know. But again, some, some experience more than others. But take a minute and think what is the worst experience or the most difficult experience that you've had to face in your life. For some, it might be the death of a loved one. Maybe it's dealing with health issues, yours or those of a loved one. It might be the loss of a job, financial problems. At some point in life, we all deal with stress and anxiety, real or conceived, just conceived. I know people who have experienced total losses of all their possessions from fire or natural disasters like tornadoes. You know, I saw on TV the other day that Domino's Pizza is bringing back the commercial with the Noid, Avoid the Noid. That little character, he's a kind of a blue looking alien guy with floppy ears and he's always trying to disrupt the pizza delivery but somehow to make things go wrong. My generation it was the coyote and the roadrunner. But every time just like the coyote and the roadrunner the coyote comes up short in the plan. Somehow things go wrong for the coyote and the roadrunner succeeded. I like that commercial because it's a lot like life. At times, it seems like there's always something, something that's doing its best to mess up our best laid plans. And again, none of us are immune to life struggles. And we all, again, will experience them at one point in time of our life or another. You know, one of the hardest things, God never promised us that we would live a problem-free life. We watch TV evangelists, and they tend to go the opposite direction. They, they tend to make you believe that the reason you're experiencing hardships is because you haven't accepted Jesus. But God never promised that we would live a problem-free life. James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3 says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. And 1 Peter 1.6 says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. Again, we will all experience problems. However, when problems do occur, we can overcome them if we place our faith in the right place. On Wednesday nights, Doug started a uh, study on the book of James. And just want to take a minute if, to say, if you haven't been attending the Wednesday night class, you might, I might try to encourage you to do so because you're really missing out on an important Bible study. The book of James is full of, of great insight on how we deal with problems, and more specifically, how our faith and wisdom is produced and how vital that is. But he gives us that insight into wisdom. 
but not earthly wisdom, but spiritual wisdom. And it's a study I think that, that every Christian needs and benefits from. So if you haven't been attending that class, I really want to just take that opportunity to, to say, you know, I really want to encourage you to do so if at all possible. But tonight, again, I want to look at some biblical principles on how we can triumph over life's problems. First, to triumph over life's problems, we have to develop a positive attitude. I know different coaching coaches and programs and self-help and books, attitude, attitude, and attitude. It all starts with attitude. You know, when problems strike, most people get angry. They get bitter, discouraged. And many times, this can lead to depression. But the Bible teaches us that when problems occur, we are to rejoice and keep a positive attitude. Romans 5, 3 through 4 says, and not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance, character and character, hope. Doug's brought this up. That word rejoice means glory in. We're to glory in our sufferings. Sounds strange. Sounds opposite of what naturally should happen. Why should we glory in our sufferings? Because suffering produces patience, character, and hope. In other words, suffering, it's designed to make us better, not bitter. God allows us to have problems so that we can grow, grow in our faith, grow spiritually, grow in our character. When a problem invades our lives, instead of sinking into, into despair and only seeing the negative aspect of the problem, we should look at the good that can come from it. Good can come from our pain. Next time you encounter a problem that's causing us either mental or physical pain, we need to try to focus on the positive. Keep our spirits high. More importantly, place our faith in God instead of focusing on the pain of mankind. I mean, believe it or not, there will be a rainbow at the end of that struggle. If we want to triumph over our problems, we need to rejoice in the Lord. And the perfect example can be seen by the prophet Habakkuk in Chapter 3, verses 17 through 19 says, Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail, and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yes, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. Verse 19 says, The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like the deer's feet 
and he will make me walk on my high heels, as in hills, not heels. Most times, this gets quoted by, and they leave off verse 19. The Lord God is my strength, and he makes my feet like deer's feet, and he will make me walk on my high hills. They avoid that when they read that about the deer's feet because to them it doesn't make sense because they're thinking of deer like we know as North American deer. But what they don't realize is the deer in reference, being referenced here are more like what we would consider more like a bighorn sheep here in North America. See those cloven hoofs, they allow them to climb slippery rock faces and the rocks, rocky type mountains and they're sure-footed, as we'd say, as a billy goat. In mountainous regions here in North America, big orange sheep can be seen standing at the tallest peaks overlooking the valleys below. This also allows them to have the ability to avoid a lot of their natural enemies who don't have that ability to have steady footing on those slippery, rocky ledges and hills. But to triumph over life's problems, we must live one day at a time and not worry about yesterday or tomorrow's problems. In Matthew 6.34, we read what Jesus taught on this. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. I know I've told different ones. My favorite song, and really is, is One Day at a Time. Uh, Chris Christopherson wrote that song. Uh, Christy Lane made it famous. You go to Branson, I don't think you can help but hear it. Uh, various ones have sung it, even Merle, Hart, Merle Haggard sang it. But the words that are one day at a time, sweet Jesus, that's all I'm asking of you. Just give me the strength to do every day what I must do. Yesterday's gone, sweet Jesus, and tomorrow may never be mine. So for my sake, teach me to take one day at a time. I'm only human, I'm only a man. Help me to believe in what I could be and all that I am. Show me the stairway that I have to climb, Lord. For my sake, teach me to take one day at a time. Do you remember when you walked among men well, Jesus, you know, if you're looking down below, it's worse now than then. Pushing and shoving, crowding my mind. So for my sake, teach me to take one day at a time. One day at a time, sweet Jesus, that's all I'm asking from you. Give me the strength to do every day what I have to do. Yesterday's gone, sweet Jesus, and tomorrow's may never be mine. So for my sake, teach me to take one day at a time. You know, we read Matthew 6, 34 that said, therefore, do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Kind of makes you think sometimes when people write those songs, they might've read, might read the Bible, might've got that idea from scripture. Scripture also tells us in Philippians 3, 13 through 14, it says, Brethren, 
I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I, I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God is Christ Jesus. You know, it's kind of hard at times to take advice from someone who you can't relate with or someone who can't relate to your problems. First thing pops in your head is how do they know? What could they understand? It's like, you, it's like you feel, how can you trust someone who hasn't experienced firsthand what you're going through and what you're dealing with? A few years back, one of my doctors required that I visit one of the counselors they had on their staff before they started my treatments. Well, I showed up, had to, <laughs> not really knowing what to expect, and uh, was in the waiting room, nurse called my name, I went back, went into this uh, kind of a small conference room, and uh, had an oblong table, kind of just room enough for about three or four people, but it had some really nice, comfortable chairs. So after sitting, sitting down, she told me to help myself to snacks, drinks, everything they had on hand, they had set up on a counter in, the, in that conference room. And uh, I can always smell a fresh, product, fresh pot of coffee, so I got a cup of coffee and just relaxed, waiting for this counselor to show up. While I was waiting, this young kid came in and started set, set, setting up a laptop and he looked like he was barely out of high school, if out. So I figured he was some sort of student aide or something. Yep, he was the counselor. <laughs> so we, we started talking about everything and after about a minute he stopped and asked if I had a problem talking to a counselor his age. I looked him square in the eye and just said, yes I do. And asked him, just what was, what's, what's the worst problem you've ever had to deal with in your life? I wasn't trying to be mean or hurt his feelings, but I mean, I got socks older than this kid, you know? He was, he was pretty understanding, he, he was pretty good about it. But, uh, and he, he felt, he understood how I felt and uh, confidently said that he had a lot of experience with life struggles and again, that's where I think he made his mistake because I think the worst thing probably he ever experienced was getting dumped by his girlfriend on prom night. So he did go on to tell me all these degrees he had and the classes he's taken and how to be a counselor and what all to talk about and this master's degree and working on his doctorate was supposed to make him qualified. So he felt very qualified to talk about my, you know, any of my problems. And I kept telling him, I, I don't have any problems. That my faith helps me get through this. I'm not depressed. I don't feel down. I'm totally fine with it. And I, again, I was trying to be polite, 
and he was doing his best. And he did feel com very confident with the skills and education he had. He kept going on about it. But I guess it was either the smile on my face or that little chuckle I gave a couple of times during his exhortation of his life skills. So we agreed that it might be much better find some, you know, for a counselor closer to my age. Short story, I apologized to him, and, and I explained that it was just, you know, I was taken off guard when he walked in. <clears throat> but we ended up having a very good discussion. And I kept explaining that I put my faith in God. And he informed me he didn't believe in God that way. So I took the opportunity to talk to him about God and turn the conversation to salvation. And he talked more about man's theory on life. So I completed that required visit. I didn't change his mind about God. And he only made my faith stronger by his insistence on putting my faith in the wisdom of mankind. He went away feeling good because he had told me about Sigmund Freud and all of those theories. And I went away feeling good about taking the opportunity to tell him about Christ and salvation. We still see each other as we pass through the hallway and when I'm there on my office visits. Still smile at each other. We used to shake hands, now we do the goofy elbow thing because of COVID. But in that situation, you know, I felt the worst thing I could do was to be belligerent and condescending, and condescending in my attitude. I'm sure I wasn't the first person to question his wisdom or his age, and probably won't be the last. But I only relay that story because that was the first time that I fully understood and realized that my attitude, my disposition, my faith towards life trials, that it could make a direct or have a direct effect on somebody else's life. Even at our worst, we always need to remember someone's watching. Someone's watching us. Someone's paying attention to what we're doing. We're to be that light on that hill. I'm not saying I did the best job in the world, but I did my best. You know, the parable of the sower kept popping, popping up in my mind while I was talking to him. And my biggest question as I was leaving was, was I planting a seed or was I burning a bridge? You know, Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16 says, You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and he gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. You know, too many times we forget whether it's life trials, struggles, problems, whatever you want to call them, we forget that God is our refuge. 
excuse me. We need to realize one, and most importantly, we're not alone. God will be our safe haven. God will be our shelter. He will guard us, oversee us through these life struggles. You know, book of Psalms, if you ever, I, I know people suggest when you have problems, read Job. It's good, it's good, it's good advice. Book of Psalm, book of James, another good one. But Psalms 46.1 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Psalm 9, verses 9 through 10. The Lord also will be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in times of trouble. And those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. I love that verse 10. And those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. It's real easy when we're experiencing troubles and trials of life. I've heard people call out, Lord, Lord, you know, why have you forsaken me? Lord, why have you left me? Lord, why have you allowed this? You can add a hundred other. And they forget that we need to put our, our trust in God. We need to put our faith in God. It's a time to renew our faith, strengthen our faith, and to come closer to Christ. We also must never forget that we can go to our Heavenly Father in prayer and that He is always there for us. Which makes the ultimate answer for help with life struggles, pray, pray, and pray some more. God will hear the faithful. Let me say that again. God will hear the faithful. Psalm 50 verse 15 says, Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. Psalm 145 18 says, The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. Psalm 34, 17 through 18 says, The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears, and delivers them out of their troubles. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart, and saves such have a contrite spirit. I know one that I tend to forget, but we should not forget to sing God's praise when life is good and when life isn't so good. James 5.13 says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. And we need to remember that these trials will end. They won't last forever. 
2 Corinthians 4.17 says, For our light affliction, affliction, which is but a, for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. You know, instead of crying out and blaming God, we need to seek God. We need to, again, strengthen our faith. I want to have one last closing thought, and the lesson will be yours. We're, we're to be followers of Jesus. I don't think anybody in this room denies that. We are his disciples. Do you know the Greek word for disciple is math, mathetes? And it literally means one who learns from another by instruction. And I'm, you've probably guessed by now, that's where we get our, our English word mathematics. But it means more than just being a pupil or a student. It describes, as the dictionary said, an adherent of a, te you know, for, of a teacher, someone who earnestly studies, someone who earnestly follows, not a casual learner, but one who studies. So being a disciple of Christ means it means way more than just being a follower. It means we are to be a student who studies and learns from the master. You know, there may be some in here that math comes natural. I'm not one of them. And I imagine most people had to study. I went back to, and most people know, in my 40s, went back to college. I had to start back with a lot of math classes, and then I had to take advanced level math classes, which meant I had to take some remedial courses, and I had a lot of study, because to me, math was something I had to study to learn. Even people that they say it comes natural, they still have to see it once. They still have to see it done, and they can learn from that, and it's just a matter of how quick of a learner they are. But you have to study, and that's with just about anything that you're gonna learn. You have to apply yourselves. There's no way, ask anybody that's taken something as level as differential equations. You, you, you cannot do that. I, I don't know anybody that went into that class as a natural. Everybody studied. And that's what it means to be a disciple. Someone who not, again, not just a pupil or a casual learner, but one that studies, studies God's word. Along these same lines, I'm always impressed on how Jesus called his apostles. And before they were apostles, they were called to follow Jesus, just like his disciples. And every time, I, again, I get a smile on my face because Peter has got to be the most interesting character or example. You know, Matthew 4, 18 through 20 gives us the account. 
It says, And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter, and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea. For they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. So here we see this official, this first initial calling or call out to follow Jesus. Now, fast forward, and we see what Jesus had to say to Peter at the Last Supper. Jesus, he's just identified Judas as his betrayer, and Jesus is telling Peter that he was going to deny him three times. Peter's arguing, says, no, I won't, won't ever let that happen. Lord, I'd die for you. But Jesus is telling the apostles that he's leaving them for a short while. And Peter asked Jesus, where, where are you going? And this is in John 13, 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterwards. First thing he told him, and the last thing he told him before the, that we have account of before the crucifixion. Now again, jump forward after the resurrection. Jesus, he's risen from the dead. He's walking with the apostles. Jesus has just asked Peter, do you love me? Asked him three times. This is where Jesus, some say he restores Peter. And, you know, from when, when he denied him those three times. And each time, Peter is told by Jesus to watch over his sheep, tend to his sheep. But that reply in John 1.22, Jesus said to him, If I will that he remain till I come, what is that of you? That to you, you follow me. In that case, Peter had just seen John, and Christ had just told Peter, basically, you're going to die. How his fate was? What his fate was? Was that he would die on a cross? And uh, so naturally, John, being right behind him, Peter, what about him? Peter and Jesus said, "Don't worry about him." You follow me. So those times that he, they, he brought up, you follow me. And I think that's one of the best examples that we can take away. Whether it's in life struggles, trials, tribulation, or just life in general. We follow Jesus. As Christians, we're called to follow Jesus to be students of his teaching, to be his disciples. We are to follow him. But as we go through our Christian life, if we follow Jesus, we will experience hardship. We will experience trials in our life. We always need to remember we can find refuge in God. We can find shelter in God. And we are to rejoice in our life struggles. We are to put our faith in Christ. Again, we are to follow him. You know, we always want to extend an opportunity to anybody that has need, whether it's the prayers of the church or anybody needing 
to make that decision for baptism. But every time we gather together, we want to offer that, that invitation. And that invitation extends pretty much 24-7. You can call any of the elders or dub. We just always want that to be available at any point in time that somebody makes that decision. But if you have needs of the church, we want to extend that opportunity to you now as we stand and sing. Mm -hmm. 